0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 145. I was about to
1: speak into nothingness,
0: Zeke. Yeah, yeah, it was like the moment I was like about to go, <gasps> and, and your realized... mic was in the stratosphere.
1: Yeah, it was. I had to like bring it back down to planet Earth. But um, that's all right. I'm prepped for it. I'm good to go. This looks really loud. Should I turn my audio down, Zeke? Oh, okay. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's really, really loud. I'm going to turn myself down. Pew! There we go. I'm slightly less loud now, Zeke.
0: Yeah, let's hope that's uh, A-OK to start you off. the ah, I'm sure it's fine. You know, Jake the megaphone version. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when Bart Simpson puts all the
0: megaphones in front of him. Testing! You make Simpson references, and I I just don't know any of them. You're me nuts. So it was so.
1: one, I had to... I found one person, I still had to explain it to him, but I found one person who kind of got it. The reference where Lisa Simpson's about to, like, pull the fiend to strike oil at Springfield Elementary. And then as she's walking up on stage, there's a bunch of people like clapping quite, you know, somberly. And there's one person background who's like, yay! Like a really old person's be like, yay! And no, almost no one understands that reference. <laughs> but I do. Oh, you like your Simpsons. I do. Mm, do I like you do you like,
0: like Nightmare on Elm Street or do you by chance have some trivia for me? That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my worst It's not, it's, it's, in it's in not the worst
1: one. There is there is a Simpsons parody of Nightmare on Elm Street, but that's not my trivia. Okay. My trivia revolves around New Line Cinema, which is the actual publisher of the film, and there's a lot you can learn about it, specifically on the Netflix uh, doco, or the, the show they do, the movies that made us. Mm-hmm. They have a Nightmare on Elm Street episode, which went up pretty recently, so it was very fortuitous. Uh, but one of the things they go into is sort of the relationship between the guys sort of founded New Line Cinema and Wes Craven and their collaboration relationship on making this film... But what it went into is that this was pretty much their first big success story, was Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was sort of their make and break and that they put all the money they had in the world into this film and it could have completely bankrupt them. But instead, it made them a boatload of money and pretty much was their financial security for the rest of mm-hmm. rest of their time. And, of course, they went on to make you know the Ninja Turtles movies, some of the Jim Carrey comedies, um, Lord of the Rings, probably the biggest one of their catalogs. So... Yeah, the house that Freddy built is what they call it. The New Line Cinema. Good stuff. That's that's my trivia, Z, but I don't know if you have some trivia for me.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of sort of the shot in the dark that this film was mm. and sort of the obscurity and contextual importance of horror, sla- well, slasher horror films in the mid-80s especially. Of course, yes. Um, which we'll talk a little bit about later in the show. Prior to making the film, Amanda Weiss... Uh, or Vice, I think, I'm, I'm not 100% sure how to mm. pronounce her, uh, plays Tina in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Hi, of course. And, uh, Heather um, Langenkamp yep. had only ever seen one horror film between the two of them. Oh, interesting. Uh, which I
1: thought was So cool. she was the one out of those two
0: that only Heather seen... Heather had seen one. Interesting. Burnt Offerings, but Amanda Weiss, or Weiss yeah. uh, had never seen one. Which, pretty crazy, I imagine, to never see a horror film and then... And then have have to one of your earliest roles on one of the most, you know, well, well-known now slasher films.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because she talked specifically in that doco I mentioned about how she sort of was, her, I think her dad gave her like five grand and was like, here you go, you can go to LA or, um, you know, whatever to do an acting career. And if you run out of this money, you can come back home. And she was on the cusp of losing that money when she landed this role as Nancy. So that is interesting considering that there was a big breakthrough, a lot of big breakthroughs on this film. Yes. Including uh, one particular name we're going to get to, I'm sure, later in the show. It's very exciting. But Zeke, is this film on the 1100 film poster, films you need to watch before you die? It probably definitely is. It is. Yeah. It is indeed. 1984 film that made it onto the list. But Zeke, do you think it belongs on that list?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. I think, um, I think, it's obviously the context, like you said, the breakout roles, which we'll tap into a little bit later. Mm. There's enough history and information in this film to make it, even if you're not a big fan of the film, make it worth watching before
1: you mm. die. I like that phrase. Yeah, I agree. I think it should be on the post. I think it's a very important film in the slasher subgenre and Wes Craven's career and horror films in general. So I agree, it should be on the list. Um, there's a few things I would like to get through we talked about this off the show Zig it's been a big week in cinema yes big week in film I'd like to jump into those before we move on uh, just to, to assess your feelings on that uh, the, the thing that I've been waiting for 11 years for and that's not even a stretch they released the Uncharted movie trailer which, uh, there was, was so much sighing in your delivery. <laughs> <laughs> there was a you lot of somberness. <laughs> no, so uh, for those who know, I'm a huge, huge, huge mega Uncharted fan. I have been since I started playing the games in 2010.
0: So I like I'm... how video games have slowly creeped their way into this show.
1: Well, yeah. I think it's natural. Cause we Especially both...
0: in the last month or so. It's been really... Like... Well, in the
1: last month. Oh, I right. guess because we talked about Free Guy. Yeah, multiple ways. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But um no, I th- I mean, you know, we both play games and-, and obviously storytelling and narrative and all of that in gaming has become huge over the last couple of decades, especially. And Uncharted is frankly one of the big reasons for that. I mean, Uncharted 2 in particular, the 20- 2009 video game was, I mean, it was huge. It was mm. a gigantic milestone in the industry for interactive narrative storytelling um in terms of it being sort of this pop uh, zeitgeist Indiana Jones I don't even like to say rip off but very openly inspired by Tomb Raider, Indiana Jones yep. but um Amy Hennig's wonderful creation the action and
0: adventure Exactly
1: exactly and I think it just it had a whole new milestone for gaming in terms of not just that but and the writing but the performances as well and that it's one of the first games to ever have um pretty much its entire story told through uh, mocap visual and audio recording on the same... Even the first Uncharted recorded the lines separately from their mo-caption body performances, which is always fascinating to me. And, and that's why this franchise as a whole is so important to me and to the gaming mm. industry. And they have been trying to make this film for over a decade. I mean, the, the, I always laugh because Mark Wahlberg was meant to play Nathan Drake, and now he's playing the old mentor, Sullivan, which I is The ripe old age of... Just... I, well,
0: I, I think Mark is actually in his 50s, but... Right, yeah. Obviously, he does not look it.
1: No, he looks early thirties in this trailer. <laughs> that aged him down for no reason. I ju- yeah, I just, I had to point it out because it's, I think it's a travesty. <laughs> to put it lightly, I think, yeah, I was very disappointed, and I think, I think the actual like look of it, like I see what they're going. They actually, I can see Uncharted in this trailer. But it's a lot of the specifics that we've talked about before. It's just like the fact that they didn't even try with Sully. He's not wearing his bowling shirts or munching his cigar or even has the, you know, the mustache or anything. They're just not trying with not that. Yet. I certainly not yet, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be the last scene. Oh, kid, Don't look at my mustache. Um, I just, I think Tom Holland's not greatly cast. And I could see him, what he's trying to do in it, but it's just, you can't take the Tom Holland away from Tom Holland. You know what I mean? You can't unsee it. It just doesn't seem like Nathan Drake, you know what I mean?
0: I think it's just I I true. I I think, you know, to to build on the Indiana Jones, obviously the Harrison Ford um the groundwork was set in Star Wars. So his jump over to the Indiana Jones character was was very seamless because the character, you know, he was his first big blockbuster break was as a swindling sort of smooth talking don't like sort of that it carries over and actually you know whereas obviously you know tom holland's become famous of being like you said this juvenile teenager boy character so it's like getting peter pan to play this well to it like you said mm-hmm. i mean you've talked about it with the with the video, off the air the the video game has that flirtatious nature and he's yeah, now well, playing they're, they're all
1: adults and all the all the characters are is sort of There's like a flirtatious sense of fun between them all, and and that's where the energy comes from with their dynamics. And this doesn't have any of that. I don't think Tom Hong can pull that off, especially just for how young he looks. But all the character, they they, they just don't make sense. You know, Mm. it's like Sully knows all of Nate's friends like before Nate does in this. Just things like that. I just don't understand what they're doing or why they they're picking the wrong set pieces. Like they're trying to do the plane sequence in the third game, and it's like. That's the only one you can't really fake. Everything else, like if you, you can get some real cars involved, real horses, some real stunt things. But they pick the thing. They that's... pick the one thing you have to green screen, and it just doesn't look good. It doesn't look as colourful as the original game does. Everything just seems so manipulated in this Marvel-esque way, where you know all the quips are, you know, they've been approved by twenty people. Like these are the best quips that audiences find funny. Yeah, control you know. room exactly yeah, it's and it's and uncharted the actual game just feels more fluent than that it feels more playful and less target audience to you know what i mean I don't know. well just... i
0: had a lot of fun with the trailer seeing as it was the first trailer i had watched for a film mm. this i think close to this year yeah like how i watched that not like the batman trailer but um no i i i was saying this to you off mm. the air i think that it's a very interesting conversation because they seem to be just missing the not even de- missing the mark i think it's an understatement they're just bombing the this this transition between uh um th- trying to be true to its its video game roots and and the cinematic sort of depiction um we were talking about how it's a it's a homogeny of all four film all four games mm. which are all what ten to twenty hours in length each. Like yeah, roughly yeah. Um, so that's forty hours, you know, to just thirty to forty hours of content that's being condensed into probably what will be a hundred minute to one hundred and twenty minute film. Um, and it's it it's definitely interesting because I was saying this to you also that uh, the people that are going to enjoy this film are the people that have never played nor really heard too much about the game it's based off. They're going to be the people that enjoy this, the yeah, most. which
1: is why they made those casting decisions. Like it's not it's not that anyone in that boardroom thought Tom Holland was a great Nathan Drake. It's just Tom Holland brings in money, and Mark Wahlberg brings in money. Yeah. And like we said this off the, show, the only casting I think is really spot on is Antonio Banderas as just a villain. Yeah, not even a specific villain, just a villain. It's like yeah, that makes sense. Nothing else makes sense about this. So yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's you're right. The fact that they're mixing and matching plot elements, like they introduced characters, or or at least they're mentioning characters by name who weren't in the original trilogy even, mm-hmm. who were introduced in the, at the last minute, at the end of the race. It's like, I don't know what they're going for it. like it's obvious. I know people are getting upset like, oh, it's a prequel, but it's the third game. It's mm-hmm. like, I, that doesn't bother me. I understand. This is just its own thing. But I think they're taking too many ideas that are already pre-established and mixing them up in ways that don't make any sense. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry. But it's anyway. Def-
0: it's definitely a bit of a head scratcher because yeah. it just kind of looks like another one of the, you know, like the the Tomb, tomb Raider film that came out a couple of years ago. Mm. Some, like stuff that just doesn't feel like it has any personality whatsoever. Or well, the Assassin's Creed one, you know, these, these ones that you're just kind of like very confused as to where... They, they like where they're actually tapping into the source material apart from really just the name. Yeah, I think that's, that's the,
1: it. It's the name and the actors and source material size. It's just whatever will bring in yeah the audiences and I, and I I get what they're doing because they're re-releasing the the Uncharted four port for PS five around the same time this movie comes out. So it's like there's clearly a higher up Sony marketing plan for this whole thing. But it just feels disingenuous. And I remember making fun of the David O. Russell version that was getting made 10 years ago, where I didn't even... Apparently, Joe Pesci was meant to be in it, as well as Robert De Niro. Like, that sounds insane. But now that I'm thinking about it, I was like, well, that sounds like it would have been more interesting than just
0: Sony-manufactured film. <laughs> I could see a, a, TM. a, a De Niro being uh, a Sully.
1: That would be so interesting. But, like, I, I just wish that universe, like, played out, you know? <laughs> Where Thanos didn't get the stones and Robert De Niro played Victor goddamn Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a strange uh, one. I Mark think, Ruff, you think though, at Mark this Warburg. point
0: now with video game movies, you just have to accept they're always going to kind of suck if you are a fan of the franchise. I think everyone's had one at this point. that They were loved that franchise and couldn't wait for that movie to come out. And then they saw the first trailer and went, that's nothing like... Uh, I remember the first time I watched the Assassin's Creed trailer. I still went mm. and saw that movie. Right. Um I haven't seen it, no. Just complete betrayal of the source material because they don't care about the source material, really. No. They care about the name associated I, with I
1: remember it. reading before that came out, like, 75% of the film took place in the present. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, why? that That's... Nobody likes those parts. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I don't anyway. think it was that
0: bad. I think it was probably 50-50, I'd say. Okay. Um, but it just was kind of... I didn't actually hate the film. I still don't really hate the film that much. Um It's, it's always a
1: good sign. I didn't hate it
0: that much. <laughs> I think it comes back to it's like what's what's this, right? Like is the movie bad if it does if it completely betrays the source material? Not necessarily, right? Because the source material is it's no different to the sort of same problems that you could have with the comic book f- debate that things aren't staying true in the MCU to the comic right. books they're based off. It's the same situation. What they're doing now is they're catering to the, the lowest common denominator. What, Like I said, the people they're going to watch the Uncharted film and actually enjoy it are the people that have never played the video games and uh, that don't know anything about it. They don't even know it's a video game. Yeah, well, they... Because they're just going to watch it and it's going to be a fun adventure film with actors yeah, they with probably Yeah, with actors know.
1: they like. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Actors are, like not necessarily actors that would fit the role better.
0: I'm not going to lie though, there was already some real head scratching one liners in the trailer that were weren't even well written. What was the, what was the one with you? Oh, said yeah, to yeah. It, Sully where it was like he S- has no S- friends. Sully
1: doesn't have any friends. I should know. I'm one of them.
0: <laughs> That's not a line. That doesn't make any sense.
1: God damn it. Anyway, let's move on from this because I'm sick of talking about it. Um. The other thing I wanted to mention this is a little bit more of a serious note. So we've we've both talked about the Alec Baldwin situation that's happened in the last week, mm. not on the show, of course, but for those who haven't heard about it, this is a very recent news story. That uh, I guess it happened on Wednesday or Thursday. It was one of those days when one of those, yeah. When I heard about it, um, essentially on the on the set of a western that they were making called Rust, that I believe he was a producer on and an actor on. There was a mishap very similar to the one that happened in the nineties for, um, I think, The Crow is what mm-hmm. it was called. there. I never saw it, The Crow, but... Um, which is surprise, I guess, it actually came out. Yeah, now that I think about it. But a very similar accident where a gun was uh, mishandled or fired. And there's still so many rumours out there, it's hard to tell what's what, whether it was a live bullet or just shrapnel that let loose or whatever the case may be. But it did kill the DP that was working on the film. It injured the director, who also got shot. Um, just horrible situation uh, that really just don't know what to say about it i know there's a lot of rumors out there about you know the set being incredibly mishandled a lot of the crew had walked out prior to this happening because of issues with covid safety with them not getting hotels booked correctly and just general lack of safety Mm. on the set and i was hearing that the armorer especially was very uh, mishandling the weapons the ad second time i think
0: hmm? that she was the armorer like an armorer on set Oh, the
1: so the second time she's only ever done it mm-hmm. oh okay interesting yeah well it sounds like not enough experience and and um, part of it as well is that to replace the crew that had walked out they got non-unionized crew locals from mexico and just a lot of very unprofessional things happening from the sounds of it but um it's interesting because i haven't really worked with an armorer before i don't think either of us have but you know i've worked on sets where there were weapons involved and the the rigamous Sort of safety precautions that go into that. The amount of shots that directors can't get because of things like this potentially happening, mm. that they just, you know, they just suck it up. They're like, well, we can't we, get that we've, shot. We've heard
0: stories too about, um, <clears throat> even, even from some of our, like, tutors when we were in university about how they couldn't get, like, blanks or stuff. So they just had the actual physical prop and then they would do the old fashioned. Like string on a can kind of shots, um, right? Uh, oh yeah, just I to like that, yeah. just to show the projectile, and then just appropriately sound mix it and post and such. And I think um, that's that's a pretty common place in Australia. Australia has very, you know, obviously a couple of weeks ago we talked about the the our sort of you know on the Nitram episode, the yep. the overhaul of of gun control did um, cascade into industry areas too, and. Over here, it's an, it's immensely strict. Even having not even live firearms, including like blanks and such on sets, requires police notifications and an armor on set, and then only certain people are actually permitted to fire those firearms mm-hmm. too. It's incredibly strict and complex, and unless you want to run the risk of 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 getting a fine or even arrested, it, it, you pretty much have to go through the channels here. Whereas, yeah. I mean, it's interesting hearing about all these things, like a lot of walkouts, and it seemed like a set that was slowly descending into chaos. Yeah. Um, and um, to have that happen, thats, that's is, it, you would hope that this might lead to some form of um, overhaul with how they at least handle guns on, on sets. Yeah. Think, well, because it- apparently there was a lot of mixing with... They, th- they said some of the ammunition might have been mixed with live ammunition too, which is... Yeah,
1: which is atrocious. That should never happen on uh, a How I does that happen? Yeah, um, just misbehaviour. And I think... I've seen people make the argument that maybe we should just start, you know, playing, you know, with more, with more obviously fake plastic guns and then CGI and the effects. I actually think that's... Uh, obviously not everyone's going to be able to do that mm-hmm. but like when you see the kind of cgi effects that they're putting in marvel films and obviously they have the money for it but it's like they're cgiing entire costumes on characters and it's like mm-hmm. why can't they just like cgi the orange tip of a plastic gun you know i actually think that's a pretty ingenious idea yeah and not I, not everyone's going to be able to do it if you have a shoestring budget Sure, it's probably a lot cheaper to get an actual even like, just, replica gun, or
0: well, even just having replica guns that don't fire blanks, and then yeah. CGIing the gunshot side. Um,
1: yeah, because I think a lot of what's in those guns is just to create like the muzzle effect or the flash, like it's a visual effect for the camera. Yeah, and it's not meant to be like an actual, you know, moving bullet or projectile. So why why can't you just CGI a bloody the a flash? muzzle flash like, exactly?
0: Like the because if the, I I think that a lot of the productions I know that happen here the micro production I mean I you know we it's quite easy for you to obtain in in a like here like replica guns that can't be like they're not they're not fireable they're all they do is you can cock them and you can mm-hmm. click them and you can pull out the clip and such you can do everything but you can't use like blank rounds in it here. yeah. So that the only thing you have to do is CGI a muzzle flash and the sound effect, like on the click, and that's not difficult to do. In fact, YouTubers do it all the time. Yeah,
1: well, you look so at the to... Corridor Crew episode. I'm thinking of the one they the did Nerf with one. John. Yeah, well, I'm thinking of the one they did with John Wick, and apparently that actually has a lot of. I, I have to rewatch it because it was a while ago I saw it, but apparently they do go into that stuff about armorers and how guns on set work. So it might be interesting to rewatch just for that reason, um, but yeah, I think that the cost it would take to CGI and a muzzle muzzle flash over potentially having people being shot I mean, to death I've,
0: on set. I've taught year ten, sixteen year olds, and obviously right. it's not go- It's not the same. Like I know it's not the same level as like a internationally recognised film, but the fact that a sixteen year old can go into Premiere Pro and even just do something as simple as putting a PNG overlay right. in sync with it's like it comes back to the safety side I mean if you're getting people on there that have no experience and, and having these sort of stories come out of this set sounds like it was it you know it, it, it's a collection of, of really poor mishappenings that have led to a really tragic incident Yeah, that honestly clearly shows that at least there needs to be some form of standardisation with this sort of practice because this sort of stuff shouldn't be happening ever, with the amount of people that work on films. Yeah, well we just so. need
1: more I mean this plays right into the strike that's about to start or at least people are wanting to start is just people are in conditions where they're overworked and they're tired and they're breaking all sorts of rules just to get their dailies done things need to change yeah, legitimately and, and this is an example of that and you know that, that DP, the only reason she didn't walk out we know is because she thought this would be her big break and look what happened, like it sucks, and things do need to change. And that I honestly think the whole "why don't we just CGI part the parts of the gun that don't kill people or do kill people rather"? I don't see why that's such an absurd suggestion. Where we're in the days where every single prop in your Marvel film is a is a bloody CGI additive. Yeah. So I don't know. But yeah, I feel bad for Alec Baldwin. I think anyone who blames him in this situation is out of their mind. You could say he is a producer, so he is partly responsible. Responsible for the irresponsible crew, mm-hmm. but I also think he's he, he's just a hatch by name. I don't think he's he's not the person that should have been making sure the armorer wasn't a hack. I'm yeah. sorry, that armorer is a hack. If you let that happen, yeah, and the props department and the ads, because apparently the ad was also part of that, just handing weapons, not checking safety. The whole crew just
0: it, sounds yeah. incredible. Like serious lack of discipline. Yeah, um, terrible. Um. And that goes to show why it's so important that you know at least here in Australia why it's, it, it just re, uh, reaffirms why it's so important that we have these on-set rules and laws in place because um, it's not a it's not a um, it's not a toy and no it's, it's it's a really serious practice that you have to take into consideration and if you're not this go this this dire example. Shows the consequence of of those discipline and and people, like you said, the armorers and and the PDs and so they shouldn't get to work again.
1: No, and, I hope they never work again. Um,
0: and they probably <laughs> won't. There's probably a very good chance they won't. Um, seeing as these, like you said, the last time this something like this happened of of this sort of public note mm. was the Crow, um, and you know it was that was over twenty. 25 years ago so it, it it's it is interesting because you need to and that was brandon lee and um and so yeah it's it, you know it's pretty crazy because um it's probably yeah put fuel to that strike fire yeah And which 100%. i do think i do think that it is it has been a weird world particularly in the in the states with with the, you know, only in the frame, we're only going to talk about it in the frameworks of, of on-set situations, but how wildly inconsistent the rules and regulations with on-set protocols have been, um, state by state and location by location over the states.
1: It reminds me of the Tom Cruise situation where people outed him for abusing his crew for going against um, COVID protocols. And from day one, I was on his side. I was like, yeah, no, as a producer he has every right to be pissed off at them but it's like these are the reasons these are the reasons these producers should be on people's asses for safety it's because of this I'm not saying COVID's exactly the same situation but if it leads to someone's death then why not yeah yeah completely irresponsible
0: and uh, our thoughts thoughts are with the family 100%
1: agree yeah so what have you been watching
0: (laughs) on a lighter note I've continued my run with uh, New Girl Mm. Um, that's pretty much all I've been watching the last week it's been pretty hectic I'm getting to the end of my semester so um, everything's ramping up yep. Um. but I've burned through that show Jake like nobody's business I'm, I'm now gay. midway through season 6 and I said this off air I, I really do think the show is probably the most consistently good show sitcom I've ever watched i.e. I, to this point in time and like I said I I've looked ahead to see how many episodes I had left ahead of me and there's far less than i thought i hope it doesn't hit a wall right at the end there but Mm. um yeah just consistently good like there's never been a moment of like pure excellence but it's it's, you know makes me laugh and and i think it's very well written um i think maybe i mean the show wrapped i believe in 2018 and and that was an interesting time because I mean, probably the only one of note, like I was, um, that really kind of has transcended the show is probably Jake Johnson. I know Zoe Deschanel had breaks prior to the show, so um, it's been interesting to to see she's kind of. Um, I As I was talking last week on the show, feels like she's taken a predominant step away from a lot of that. Apart from a couple of voice acting roles on the Trolls movies, but um, I mean, they make money those movies, so um, that's uh, that's where the paycheck is. Hey. Um, it's interesting, though. I, I definitely think it's been such a an, e- an easy show to watch, but I'm not the only one that watched a show this week that mm. just binged through it like nobody's business. Jake, what did you watch?
1: Yeah, so last week I was talking about Succession. I'd only seen the first four episodes then, and I've smashed through the rest, so now I'm up to date. In fact, I watched the second episode of Season 3 today, which is absurd because I know some of the scenes that are happening in these episodes that I just you sort of fit like a glove into my binging session where mm. it's like I'm just watching the show as, as I'm watching the show knowing that the the conversations that are being had by the characters in today's episode people have been waiting for two years for this which is insane I, and I equated it to you as the Hank on the toilet scenario of people having to wait a year to find out what happens after that and break in Breaking Bad um, you're just casually just- and I'm just sort of slipping into it being like yep this is and, and it feels consistent which is great because you've obviously had two years and COVID splitting seasons two and three up so it's great that i'm jumping right into season three and it feels like a natural continuation of what's happening but also just a complete rewrite of the show's stakes it's absolutely brilliant where the show has gotten to it and i just i love that i'm watching something again that's so witty and just so sharp um because like sometimes i try and do that into my own writing as sort of characters with sharp sort of comments mm. and throwbacks at each other and it, it it's always a hard balance to get right because you would rather just write, like, realistic dialogue. But there's something about the show's stakes and the fact that these characters are where they are, that everything they're saying is so uh, uniquely hilarious and also engaging. I mean, it is such an engaging show. I I cannot believe how, like, glued to the screen I am watching this stuff mm. and these characters. And to the point I made last week about how these characters are just a bunch of rich white assholes. And and it, it's almost it's playing with your perspective because some of the things they're doing and defending are absolutely horrible. There's a fantastic scene in towards the latter half of season two where they're watching sort of this like 60 minutes interview of a whistleblower that's pointing out like sexual scandals and stuff within the company. And they're all sitting around a couch and booing him and making jokes about him. And it's like, that is the righteous thing to be doing. And we're following the characters who are trying to cover this up and, and like butcher this person. Mm. And it's fascinating that it just makes that work. But yeah, succession is fantastic. Any, uh,
0: standout performances.
1: Oh my god. I wanna actually I wanna give a shout out to um Kieran Colkin, who that was a big mind melting moment for me. I was like, oh my god, that's a Colkin. I didn't realise there were Colkin brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in Scott Pilgrim for memory, and he's brilliant in the show. Jeremy Strong is phenomenal. Like that character of Kendall, who you could argue is the protagonist. I definitely think he's the protagonist of the show. He is there is something so interesting about his performance and it, it plays to the story, but he's almost on autopilot for a lot of season two until the last five minutes when sort of everything goes down, which is really exciting. But yeah, he is fascinating. And it's funny cause he's actually in a little scene in the big short, which I never realized. And he's also really great in that little scene as well with Steve Carell, which is just which is funny. But um, no, the cast all around is just absolutely insane. Um. Yeah, it's excellent. I love it. Everything else I've watched this week is in relation to our director's corner, which is very exciting. So,
0: Well, I guess it's time for ah. us to move into said director's corner. Jake, who's the director? And what are we watching? Of
1: course, Zeke. I'm talking about Wes Craven. We're doing Nightmare. I should say A Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet,
1: but something is coming to get them.
0: There's something out there, isn't
1: there? You could just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant?
0: I don't know. Peter! There's a coroner I've got to say. seen the John and puking since he saw it. You're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from. Or who would visit next? Nancy? There's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah! Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. No! Ah! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails.
1: I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. <sighs>
0: No one will survive. From Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror Nightmare on Elm Street. A young girl realizes that she has to stay awake at any cost to avoid. The clawed killer who is butchering her friends one by one in their dreams. Wait
1: till you get that log. That's an awesome log line. That's the Google one. That's the Google. The Google one I got was super spoilery. It's like monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer, seek revenge, responsible for his untimely death, parents, blah, yada, yada. It spoils everything. Yours is sick. That's a great log line. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So, uh, Wes Craven is our latest director. Director, said, "So much awe in that, yeah, um, like an auteur." Well, French of you, you, you. Could argue he's an auteur. Um, big, big film from the '80s. This one, um, yeah. You know, obviously, uh, this this, this <laughs> is our probably our, um, you know, it, it's a continuation of our uh, kind of a three week stint of horror, basically, starting with the Babadook last week and mm. moving into this director's corner.
1: Very different kind of horror, this one. Yeah. A bit more um, arced in its time period, just sort of the, the slasher sub of the time. And, mm. and I think Wes Craven, I can't believe I... Because with Succession, I can't believe I fit in a bunch of his other films as well. And I sort of went, excuse me, in a very chronological order with The Hills Have Eyes, which I finally watched. I've been looking forward to that forever. Mm. Um, and then catching... I've seen a few of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, the only one, well I shouldn't say the only one, but the one that I hadn't watched that I really was interested in was Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which I believe is the seventh film, and the only other one that he directed himself, and that was very synonymous with the fact that it was a very meta retelling of the story, and the fact that all the characters are like the actors playing, and the actors and the producers playing themselves which is funny because watching the uh, movies that made us doco about Nightmare on Elm Street and seeing the producers and what they looked like, what their names were, and then watching Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which came out 10 years after the original film, and a lot of those producers play themselves as characters in that film. It's really interesting. But going from that, The Hills Have Eyes and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and then more interestingly, Scream from 1996... His development as a director is fascinating because not only was he like a pioneer in this slasher subgenre of horror, but he ended up doing almost a full circle where New Nightmare and Scream in particular are very meta self-reflective takes on the genre. I mean, Scream, I didn't realize this. Scream is totally unique in that it's making fun of the slasher genre, was well, making fun of it, but it's also taking those tropes and retelling them in very interesting meta ways that... I can't believe that Wes Craven made that film. And I think he only could have made that film after New Nightmare. But it's it's interesting as a director that he not only was a pioneer in creating and establishing a, a subgenre, but then also being sort of the one to make the parodies of it later. And of course you've got your scary movies and stuff. Those are more straight up parodies, comedies of the genre. But learning that about Wes Craven is he was almost the pioneer in the self-critiquing of the genre that he helped create. That is a fascinating turnaround. And what's even more fascinating is that I personally found him to get better and better. I watched The Hills Have Eyes. I was very disappointed by it. I thought it was really bad. And not that it's bad in that, you know, I don't understand why it, you know, has this cultural relevance that it does and all of that. But just watching it, there were a lot of weird mistakes. You know, if a title like that, you expect to have sort of a picnic and hanging rock Vibe, this sort of environmental, cosmic presence that you just can't quite explain, and the film very quickly leans to the oh no, they're just a bunch of weird mutants, and we're on their perspective from very early on. We know who they are. You know, there's a sequel. There is a sequel that Wes Craven himself directed,
0: and it is got a two on letterbox.
1: Oh no, but I mean, I don't even want to watch the sequel because I didn't think highly of the first one either. But you know what I mean? It's like. You've lost that sense of suspense in terms of a slasher exploitation film from the Mm. 70s. This very clearly was inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's excellent. And they're very similar films, you know, sort of out in the middle of nowhere with the desert, an innocent family or innocent set of characters trespassing on land that's sort of ruled by these other characters who are, you know, from our perspective, just completely psychotic and completely removed from the society that we understand. And it turns into a very horrifying experience. They're very similar films. They even look pretty much identical. They both look very sort of cheap 70s filmic look. I don't know if it was 16mm, but they're very similar films. And yet, I thought Texas Chainsaw Massacre was far superior in its sort of taboo visual storytelling. Um, the only thing I thought really worked well for Hills Have Eyes is the, sc- the, well, the score and the sound effects... Because it, it it's so rough in a way that actually kind of works. Where all mm. the all the the screams and the sound effects they're really they're really sharp, in a way that feels budget, but it also kind of feels like it's more effective in being scary. It's kind of like how I talked about the original Terminator has that moment where it's the Terminator stop motion by the end of the film, but it's almost more scary because it because looks bad. Yeah, it's this weird thing that I can't quite explain. Um, that really worked for me for Hills Have Eyes, but overall I was really disappointed. Then you move to the other end of the spectrum, Scream, which is nearly 20 years later. I thought Scream was absolutely excellent. And like I said, it's a very meta uh, retelling of the slasher genre. And like I said, I think he really took inspiration from New Nightmare. And, you know, this, the meta narrative that goes into that with Freddie. But refined it. Yeah.
0: To be more contemporary-based or more realistic, for, at least. For Scream? Yeah.
1: Yes, definitely. It, nightmare New Nightmare has some horrific visual effects. Horrific. Now, this is what happened with... I, I We can talk about the special effects in Nightmare on Elm Street in a mm-hmm. moment, but one of the things that continued on with that franchise is the effects got more crap and less inventive and it became more about the goofy side of freddy and what new nightmare brought back was a more sinister version of freddy but it still has those like visual effects where again pointing to terminator where they saw how cgi effects could be used in terminator 2 and jurassic park and they just didn't work the same way in a freddy film where the hand is carrying little dylan across the freeway it looks like the cheapest thing you've ever seen in your life it looks horrible horrendous there's a, there's a point when a cloud turns into freddy it looks terrible <laughs> But the ideas behind it were interesting. And then when you put those ideas into something like Scream, Mm. that is a lot more grounded. And it's just like a, you know, a guy wearing a costume chasing a girl around with a knife. It's a much more grounded way of telling that super meta story where the characters, they understand horror films. There's intertextuality where the characters are watching Halloween in this film. And then there's jokes about, Oh, Nightmare on Elm Street's great. The rest suck, but the first one's great. Sure. It's a little self padding from Wes Craven, but I appreciate it. It's very meta and it's very Mm. fun. And, and I just thought it was a really well-made film.
0: Yeah, and no, it's it's a film that I'm, I am really wanted to get... that mm. was If there was one I was going to get in when going into this corner, it was this, right. that one. So yep. I definitely will watch it probably by the end of October because it's the one I've probably, for me, is, is definitely the one I look forward to the most. I'm not, you know, I, I think it touched on this a little bit last week with Babadooka. I'm not the biggest fan of the slasher genre. Right. It's not my cup of tea. Um, was
1: this horror in general, you mean? Or
0: No, because I, 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 like... I really like psychological horror. Like, I, I actually right. can appreciate parts of, of more the Babadook-esque stuff over... Um, and even, like, re- like, so I like the kind of meta-ideology behind Scream. The idea that, like, especially when you think of the context when Scream came out, it's like we had just had, you know, 10, 12 years of this slasher genre having that really big resurgence into particularly teenage pop culture mm. um with things like the stuff from west craven and stuff like chucky and and these like kind of more absurdist slasher monsters you know like Freddy yep. and and even the, the halloween films um so i like the idea of, of of sort of the premise behind it and and kind of like you said critiquing and making fun of but also embracing and sort of like love lettering the yeah to the point where the the whole point of the ghost face killer is it's a love letter to kind of horror slasher monsters really isn't it
1: yeah well the first thing that the ghost face does on the phone is is do a quiz about horror films guessing characters names and if they get it wrong then they kill people like that's part of the first the first scene is excellent in scream uh period but you're right i think it is more of less a love letter but it's also mm. like an authentically great horror film. Well, I wasn't necessarily scared watching it, but I could appreciate that it was a well made thing while also being sort of a fun, self-critiquing circle
0: mm. of narrative. And I think Look I would kindly upon hmm? the letterbox community oh, looks kindly upon it.
1: Yeah, no, I think people love it. It's a great film. And I think more more in line with what you were talking about with a psychological horror, I think and I haven't seen it in years, but I know Wes Craven also did Red Eye. Uh, with Killian Murphy, of all people. Mm. And I think you would like that more because it, I think it's more overtly just a psychological horror than it is like a slasher film yeah. on a plane, for example. Again, I haven't seen it in forever. I could be misremembering it. Um, but that was something later on in his career he did. And he, of course, passed away in, I want to say, 2015. So not too long ago, which is unfortunate. But he's he's left a legacy behind. Mm-hmm. That is for sure. Now, Zeke. Yes. You mentioned earlier Nightmare like on Elm Street that you would put it on your poster, 1,100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime. Um, but you made a comment that I thought was interesting in terms of whether you necessarily thought it was good or not or whether you liked it or not, despite what it did for the genre. What did you think of A Nightmare on Elm Street?
0: Uh, look, I, I I enjoy certain production design elements. Mm-hmm. Um um, this is, and this kind of does play into sort of my critique of, of even the sub, the subgenre in general is, um, and kind of why, you know, I like more, um, clever parodies like Scream, uh, exist, but even as stuff as, as hokey as the scary movie stuff, even, mm. um, at least the earlier, um, points that really kind of take the, kind of acknowledge the stupidity of of characters or the unrealistic nature of some characters, and um, for me, I, I think there's a lot to uh, appreciate around this film's sort of underdog mentality. Um, I think mm. Craven, as a director, looking just at his catalog and looking at the roller coaster of, of good to bad films um, from a critical standpoint, I, I think it's. Uh, I can appreciate elements of it. I'm not... But I cannot say I enjoyed this film comparatively to things like stuff that Carpenter did around the same time. Right, okay. Um, from things such as, as Halloween and, um, The Thing. I think that, for me, um, there feels to be a more considerable... Effort to uh, utilize all aspects of 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 cinema, particularly stuff with the camera. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and the construction of the monsters are is a little bit more complex and less sort of comically overt at times. But that's that's For, my, for
1: which one? For Nightmare. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Um, I
1: think Freddy is a very interesting character. Like compared to your Michael Myers or mm. or, or your Jason Vores or anything like that. I think, and again, I haven't seen a lot of those. Slash, I've seen, I've seen, you know, some Chucky's. I've obviously seen two of the Halloweens, and there's a new one coming out very, very soon. We might hear it towards the end of the show about. But um, compared to the ones that I have seen, versus Freddy, Freddy is so different from everyone else because there is that goofy side to him. There is mm. that more playful side where he does sort of, you know, play with his food before he eats. To that kind of vibe, and he's more vocal he talks a lot more (laughs) than your microphone. Reminded me a
0: lot of, um, well, It. Stephen King's It. Right, like Pennywise. Pennywise, yeah. Yeah. Sort of like... That's a great analogy, yeah. Um, And even some of the more hokier monsters from things like Buffy, which um, there are definitely certain episodes that directly correlate to... Um Nightmare on Elm Street now mm. in retrospect as a as a buffy fan and even even the josh whedon style of of writing, which is a little bit more hokey in his depiction of horror um but yeah, I would say Pennywise is probably the most apt um uh, most contemporary example of of something like this, yeah,
1: and it's similar as well because they're both sort of hunting down or not even hunting down but like their prey are children more or less whether they're teens or or younger teens or Mm. whatever the case may be and i think that's again that's another reason why i thought scream was so clever is the commentary it had on the target audience of a slasher horror film and the target audience is typically people just a little younger than the age they should be allowed to legally watch Mm. the film so you have these young teens and now you have films starring these young teens so they see themselves in these characters and, uh, and that, that's where Scream kind of comes in and, and talks about how characters become obsessed with the things that have been targeted towards them. Uh, but in this regard, I think it re- it plays advantage of having this creepy old guy who's, you know, as we learn, is a burn victim. And my understanding was that he was a child molester. And this film doesn't really say that. Although I think there are hints
0: in there. Well, the original script says that he was.
1: Interesting, okay.
0: The original plan. So you actually, your, your hint was... Your hunch was well... Well, yeah.
1: well, I don't, I don't think it's so much a hunch because the, the 2010 remake they did, which I've seen, and that's nowhere near as good as this film, I don't think. it's It, it goes in a completely different tonal direction, which is interesting. I'm not going to mm. completely thrash it, but that film is very more overt about him being a child molester, not just a murderer. Like, that part... Feel, it, it actually kind of feels weird to me that he is a child murderer, just the fact that he kind of got away with it back in the day before the parents got to him. Well... And, it-
0: Mm. it also yeah i think it it just it's it's an intriguing one because it's like it almost i feel like the perfect slasher monster does have that degree of ambiguity mm. to them yeah um and i think that's maybe why I like like the, the carpenter michael myers or even like you know you take some of stephen king's more horror-based stuff not all of them have to have huge backstories or need to have, like... No. Like, Pennywise is not explicit... Uh, I think they might rough, like roughly address why he has to prey on, on children, but it's not out of anything that overtly malicious. It's more just he preys on children because of the easiest kind of scare, I think. Is, yeah.
1: I mean, it's something quite simple in
0: that regard and I think... It's not that he's a child molester. Or, yeah. Well, I think there are still clues in
1: this film that he is and I think the biggest one is... When, towards the end when she's on the phone and he has that line, like, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. And the tongue comes mm-hmm. out. Like, that's a gross visual. But I mean, to me, that's the s- cementation of, oh, yeah, no, that's exactly what he is or his plan is, mm-hmm. even though he's murdering these children. Uh, and the other thing, because I, I should mention at the top that, should have mentioned at the top that I, I adore these films or at least I adore this film and I've I've seen them many, many, many years ago. So it was interesting we watching this after how many years... Mm. And a lot of the things... I was surprised by how sharp it is. It's a sharp 90 minutes. A lot of the scenes that I remembered in my head sort of just play back to back to back. So I was like, okay. And there's only four kids. There's only three actual murders in this film. Which shocked me. Because in my head, I remember there being like, oh, these are the big ones. You know, the one where she's rolling against the wall. And then Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp, of course. That's an incredible (laughs) death scene. (laughs) With the... Spits out the bed. Uh But, like, in my head... I was like, oh, those are the memorable ones. And then we were watching it. It's like, oh, those are the only ones. Yeah. There were only three deaths. Those two plus, obviously, the hanging in the prison or the precinct, I should call it.
0: Yeah. it's um. To be fair, I I don't think there's that. There's not, like, in you know, if you even look at some of the original, like, I don't even think Halloween has that many. Like, the kill count's not huge in Halloween. Right, yeah. um Same sort of situation. I think it... It's interesting because maybe now we've become so. This comes back to the desensitization. It's like you look at more contemporary horror or slasher films. Like I'm not saying that they're good or anything, but it's like I saw a scene earlier this week from Truth or Dare, oh, came yeah. out a couple couple of years ago, mm. um, which is a horror film. Obviously, you got like Ouija, like these these crap films. But right. like the the kill counts way higher. The kill counts like ten, fifteen people in a movie, and you're yeah. like. Compared to back in the day where you have to appreciate it's like, it's a very tight cast. I mean, yeah. I remember growing up watching I Know What You Did Last Summer and it's like there's still, I think, six or seven deaths in that one. It's not a good film or anything Right, but-
1: well, e- even Scream, just off the top of my head, I think there's at least like eight or nine murders on screen. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them build up towards the end. But yeah, and I think it, that speaks to the whole idea of Wes Craven saying that he wants, despite it being this sort of, very unique visual flair to a lot of the deaths, and they're all very unique and interesting that a lot of the horror is off screen and he talked about that being a goal of his is that a lot of it was implication Mm -hmm. the fact that freddy only has seven minutes of screen time in this whole film which i could not believe but it makes total sense when you actually think about how many scenes it took him like
0: was it three hours to get into the makeup oh
1: god yeah i can imagine that was a full transformation right there. Well, even just his casting with Robert England, and the fact that they didn't just hire a stunt guy to put on a mask. They hired an actor yeah. to portray this role. It wasn't just like, you know, put a, put a Michael Myers mask on a stunt guy and go with it. It's like, mm. that works for that film. But for this, they wanted to give him that personality where he is sort of playing with his victims, cutting his own hands off and, like, laughing about it. I love the little Mr. Tickle thing he's doing with his arms. It's great. But, like, they have the freedom to be funny because that's funny. Well, it's also because like of that. the
0: surreal... Mm. Uh, interpret. You know, the surreal way he preys on the victims. It's through dreams. Exactly, so dreams yeah. Dreams have that um, level of surrealistic control. And I like that side of it. That's definitely... That you can huge, get away with it, yeah. A huge positive, for sure. Um, It is... It, it's interesting because... Um, you know, to touch on, I think that 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 sort of is why maybe the the contemporary comparison of Pennywise is, is definitely present because mm. of the surrealistic aspects of it too. Um, it, it's definitely interesting, and it's a, it's a different direction to take it, and must have been really interesting comparing it to things like the hills that the hills have eyes, mm. which is so kind of like you said, they're just mutant. There's no um kind of even fantasy like level of fantasy there. Um, it's just odd people living in the hills really (laughs) yeah yeah
1: well like they 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 make that they try and make it scary the reason it wasn't scary for me is because like within the first scene of introducing them it's Mm. the you know the pov of them watching the characters sort of their rvs broken down or whatever Mm. and it's just like the way they talk oh you know pretty girl oh it's like that's not scary at least it wasn't scary to me it's Mm. like the idea of the scope of sure i get it the fact that the character's like right there and they they're unaware of it I get that but to me that wasn't scary. Yeah. I think the fact that Freddy's a clearly more intelligent character who knows how to scare these characters and the fact that the film builds to it. I'm not saying it like spends the whole film building to this big climax, but you know, there's hints of like the characters talking who is this creepy person in my dreams? Them slowly realizing, oh, well, you know, he had the same jumper or he had the same hat, slowly identifying these facts. That makes him more scary because you're building to this elusive yeah, thing. He's
0: definitely got the Jaws effect. Yeah, like he's yeah. the shark. You know, like the, how little screen time does the shark get? Yeah, um, it's the same sort of situation. The shark probably only—I think the shark only in the course of the ninety minutes of Jaws only kills, I think, three or four people. Too. It's not right. a not an excessive amount, but it's the horror and the the calamity that comes around it and the, the, yeah, the fear exactly yeah and i i think that that's definitely where this where it shines um and then like little things like the notion of like not wanting to fall asleep and mm. that's how they, they they avoid it which is 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 definitely quite interesting the big question is jake johnny depp's breakout performance here <laughs> what did you think <laughs>
1: Yeah, that even even when I was a young lad, that still always threw me off. I was like, "This was his first film," like it just seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Yes. Even in the film introducing Johnny, Johnny Depp, Depp, that's crazy. But yeah, um, it's yeah, because I I always associated him with obviously his death scene, which is spectacular in this film. <laughs> just yeah, <laughs> getting sucked into that bed—it's so good yeah I don't know it it is interesting I mean you know I guess like he's he was the teenage heartthrob and yeah that was like oh look he's a pretty boy let's get him on this this image Mm. and on our film and yeah I don't know it's interesting because nowadays obviously that name has so much more weight to it we know him for so many other roles and things so that yeah yeah, that it still throws me off to this day what about does it does it make sense to you or
0: well I guess everyone's gonna start somewhere I I think it's really interesting because I think of when I think of these early career stuff, this film springs to mind. I mean, the three films I think of like early Johnny Depp, which aren't even that early, um, is this film, uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um,
1: oh, that would have, oh, yeah, that was at least, like, at least 10 years later. 90s, so it's still, it's, 90s, yeah.
0: it's um, Leo's first role in that one. So then that's interesting in its own right. Cause it's like, you know, it's DiCaprio's first role. In that film, and he's nigh recognizable in that because he's playing a, uh, yeah. a special needs uh, oh, kid. they so good, and, and he was that, so good yeah. in that that he built like people believed he actually had special needs, which was yeah. crazy. Um, and then Edward Scissorhands—that's the other one that sticks out um, from early Johnny, like Depp career. But I think Edward Scissorhands is in late nineties. Yeah, it's um,
1: definitely nineties. If yeah. I had to guess, it. but yeah, this it, definitely. I mean, obviously predates all of them, but like in terms of the 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 length, it just it feels like a big step, you know. From you're right, the the Edward Scissorhands. Oh, 1990s
0: Edward Scissorhands. It's actually not that far off.
1: Well, it's six years still.
0: But yeah. yeah, I, I know but, what you like, mean. That's though. early. That's the early block.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing. Like you associate him with his early films, and then it just feels like a big gap between Nightmare on Elm Street and then those films. Jack Sparrow. It's just interesting. Yeah, and then Jack Sparrow. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. I love it. I mean, I, I, that's always a great trivia that. I always feel like people just either forget or never know that his first film was Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And yeah, especially cuz he doesn't play that huge of a role. He's obviously Nancy's no. boyfriend, he lives across the road, but he doesn't play a huge role. Yeah, he's he's a bit kind of a, of a non,
0: non-event to be honest.
1: He's kind of a screw up. Yeah. <laughs> he always fails. He always fails to wake her up properly and then he falls asleep anyway after 12. He's and a bit of a
0: simp. A bit of a simp. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, he's it's, it's a bit of a screw-up in it, which which I find funny, but yeah. Uh, it, that is always interesting um, trivia. I think it's interesting to talk about Heather Langenkamp, who, of course, went on to... She played Nancy in the third film, which it's been a long time since I've seen that, but that's sort of a chronological sequel. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, she plays herself in uh, New Nightmare, which was that was an interesting performance to see, especially because it was 10 years after the fact. But um, I think she's really excellent in this. I love the. It's such a random, uh, sort of. It doesn't even make sense. But I love the 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 strand of gray hair that she develops halfway through the film, that she just has for the rest of it.
0: It's mm. Such a weird, interesting detail. It's a nice little motif. It's such yeah. a fascinating film because yeah, it, a lot of people very very positive. He's a director, I don't think I've ever seen a director have such polarizing reviews for so many of his films. like on Are, the
1: they, are they polarizing, though?
0: Yeah. I feel like he's big films of big successes, though. Like, I
1: know people who don't Scream's
0: like... Scream's the only one I can see that has a consistently positive score. Like, right. not, even this film we're talking about has have some people being like four and a half stars and some people being like two stars.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think look, the effect that he has as a director on this genre... Across the board. I can sit here and be like... I think The Hills Have Eyes sucks. Or I didn't like it. Or I'm sure the remake's probably better. And I have my reasons for it. But like I can't deny... It's importance in the horror genre. Mm. And I think that alone sort of cements him... As a very important director. And... I Like I like going on and seeing... Yeah people putting their 4.5 or 5 star reviews... Of Hills Have Eyes and Nightmare on Elm Street... House on the Left. Like those films that... Like I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I think it holds up pretty well, considering a lot of people are saying it doesn't. Which I can see why people say that. I think the only thing I really have an issue with is the ending. We'll get to that soon, I imagine. But I can't. I, I like seeing people find reasons to love these films. Mm. I really do appreciate that. So I, I struggle to say that he's a divisive director. I really don't think he is. But I think people agree generally that his stuff does age poorly. Like I'm not going to sit here and say a Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't age. <laughs> There's definitely things that don't hold up. One of the speaking of that actually, it's interesting because even though they did the 2010 version of this film, which we're just going to ignore for now, I like the idea that if you brought this film into the modern day, it wouldn't work nearly as well because a lot of it is renowned around the parents' ignorance and they're, they're designed to not let the children know about what they did to Freddy when they were younger. Mm. And the idea that the kids... They need their parents to tell them that. You know, they have telephones, but they don't have, you know, the mobile phones. They don't really have the internet. They can't just search up who Freddy Krueger is. They need to get this information out of their parents. And the parents need to keep their kids blissfully unaware of any of this stuff. So I think that's an interesting sort of tether that you couldn't really do anymore these days.
0: Yeah, it's... it's we would have to find a workaround. Um, I, like, I don't think it's impossible. Mm. You would just have to kind of re rework the script. But as we've seen, you know, with the Halloween 2018 film, um, these sort of myth- a mythos of, of, of slasher monster can exist in a modern-day setting. Um, with the right um catering to it, I mm. think, um, yeah, you couldn't have the unknowing side probably, right. like not knowing who he is. But if you if your role was okay, we're just gonna you guys know who he is, like you know what he's capable, like what he can do, and and stuff, and you move straight into just the the slasher side and less of the mystery and more of just the the slasher monster stuff. You probably could come up with a fun and entertaining uh inception like mm. um you know film um it's always been interesting to me with with you know looking at how many sequels between the scream sequels and and the nightmare sequels how so many of them have such relatively small budgets and never go right. to like no one ever puts a lot of money into them um
1: well the idea is that they always just make lots of money so if they can make them on the cheap yeah and that's just more money in the 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 jackpot and we talked a bit about new line how this was like their 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 deal or their their break or their break or make film and the fact that they struggled to get the 1.1 million dollars in this and yeah you know once they get into the sequels they're guaranteed hits but I think the idea is if they can make them for cheaper then they're just going to make them because the quality stops mattering at a certain point I mean that's where that comes from and nowadays I think people are more um, savvy in terms of putting money into horror films I think people know like let's let's put a few extra bucks into this mm-hmm. You know it will be worth it but I think back then I mean you know we have how many Jason sequels how many Nightmare on Elm Street sequels it was all about guaranteed box office success and it's like those films. A lot of them are terrible, so I think mean, that's where the money thing comes into.
0: It's yeah. it's so. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit more about the uh, the, the the plot points mm. of the film. Um, the, you know, it's a. I think one of my my biggest, uh, I want to say critiques. This is like one of the things I've always found really tough with this genre. Mm. I think is the suspension of disbelief. I think um, Marge's explanation <laughs> of vigilante justice on a on a child uh, murderer was um, an interesting. Uh, it's it's something I've always struggled with because uh, with um, this genre's uh, um, way of kind of trying to shoehorn this monstrous villain, but I I I, I that's my personal take on it. I, I've always struggled with that. I like the whole. Way that they kind of merge the real world with this kind of the spirit dream mm, world. Yeah. I like that. They, they
1: never really point out what's what,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I think that I think that's really clever.
0: That's one of the stronger because it definitely has that thinly veiled line. The fact that Kruger can almost you know can affect you know that 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 strange what what can be what's what's real and what's not. Um, it's just for me, it's a, one of the, the biggest things I find frustrating is, is how we get from point to point, I think. Um, and the, you know, it's funny cause it's a tight 90 minutes too. So maybe, mm. maybe that, that might play into it. That it's like, we need to get that backstory here and there. And, um, well, what, what specifically doesn't work necessarily? Um, for me, it's, it's, it's honestly, it, I, I guess it's, Trying to um, wrap my—it's so strange because I—I I don't make this critique for things like Buffy, but when I watch this mm. film, I, I kind of maybe it's almost like I—I I, in this sort of time with eighties and and nineties cinema and television, I I almost think of—I mean it was very clear that television always took a a back burner to right. to cinema, and so for me it's it's always been that. I, I've always found that the most effective horror films from the seventies and eighties were the ones that were more ground. T- we talked about it a little bit last week with the with the Babadook and it's compar- like it's Wolf Creek comparison. I, I always found I've always found films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm. and stuff more grounded and more believable, and then thus more horrific. Whereas sometimes this just felt kind of like it's the. It's the whole thing of, oh, he was a... You know, he's a this murderer that got out on a technicality and the mm. parents band together to burn him alive in this vigilante justice. It's, right. It seemed a little, like, a over a contrived, the top. Yeah, over okay. the top. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that sort of stuff kind of makes me more laugh than... <laughs> um, yeah,
1: there's definitely... I feel like there is an element of humor in it. I don't know if that's what they were going for with that in particular. I don't think they meant for that to be funny necessarily. It's a little funny. Though. Like I think it of like is. the Mr. Tickle Arms and like and him like, you know, cutting a hold in himself and slugs coming out. Like I think that's meant to have an element of humor to it. So I think I think there's a bit of it in there. Um for that. I think you're right. I think it's just the way she tells that story. It's very lucky. is yeah. It's just it's it's a very crazy insane story that she just sort of casually says or tells her daughter yeah i mean that stuff's a little awkward i think she's sort of it's actually funny because when i was watching this in the living room and my mum walked past and she made a comment about nancy's mom saying you know even when she was young watching this film she always found it to be really creepy which i thought was an interesting mm. interpretation and she is sort of like fleeting she's always drinking She's just... She's kind of a shit (laughs) mum.
0: Yeah. It's a very odd scene, and it kind of is just like, okay, well, we're just trying to ham all this backstory as to explaining this. And it it seems like... I feel like the film would have been more effective had we kept some of that ambiguity there. Okay. um, And built it a little bit more. Like, we don't have to hear... All of the backstory. I mean, the, the way that they tell Michael Myers's backstory in the original Halloween is done predominantly through a POV shot, which mm. is both budgetary monitoring, but it was also really interesting way of of basically being like, "This is this monster." Yeah, so well, yeah, it's a, a it's a
1: visual way of telling the story while simultaneously being like, "This is just a case of of uh, nature." Yeah, nature as opposed to nurture, and then this is just a kid who's inherently messed in the head and this is where his mindset's at and then we jump forward years and we we know that we inherently know that and i think you're right it's definitely in this case it's just explaining what happened Mm. and i know in the 2010 remake that actually that's an actual scene where we see him being chased into the abandoned thing and the parents for the Molotov, for the, which isn't in, in itself, that's crazy. Like, a parent just has a Molotov, Molotov. it just burns this person to death. And I get it, like, it's meant to be a child molester and everything. True,
0: but it wouldn't it have been more interesting if it had been something like, like, he was tied to a post and it's more of a witch trial sort of situation. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, that sounds kind of b- bizarre as well,
0: but I know what you mean. I mean, the whole like, concept is bizarre, setting a person yeah. on fire. Like, that's the solution for killing the... The child molester to set him on fire, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. not to not to shoot him in America. No, it's like it's it just it's very like I said. It, I don't think it's meant to be intentionally humorous, but it kind of comes off that way because it's kind of hokey. Yeah, I'm not going to defend t- that at all. TV but, um, yeah. TV popcorn fun like <laughs> oh the monster the oogie boogie monster is oogie boogie because whereas I actually think the Freddy Krueger character is more effective with the Enigma. The fact that right for some an almost unexplained reason this monster is invading these dreams and um I think that's what makes things like Pennywise so effective is, mm. is there that ambiguity there. Like we know that he wants to prey on kids. We know he can only prey on kids in a certain period of time and we also know that by them not actually being afraid of him, he loses his power. Yeah. Um well that sort of plays into the I mean that's
1: almost exactly what this is as well. And it is a good segue into the ending is the idea that freddy is just this manifestation of fear and if you don't fear him then he doesn't exist and re-watching i was surprised i thought the ending was really i don't know what the hell the ending's meant to be in this film
0: what the the down basement stuff or
1: well more so when they finally when nancy finally brings him into the real world and that's what i was talking about last week with Duke when um when they bring uh what am i why am i forgetting her name now um SE Davis's character um down into the basement to almost do an exorcism on her that's almost like bringing Freddy into the real mm. world in the bubberduck sense but like that whole sequence plays out and then he runs upstairs while on fire and he and he burns the mother mm-hmm. and i feel like from a literal standpoint what this is kind of meant to be is okay well he's dead he took the mother out with him but there's the proof that Nancy was correct and her dad sees it and now he's dead and they can live a peaceful life but then it's almost almost reverts into this thing where she turns around, you're not real, I don't believe you, he sort of fades. And then they walk out into this bright-lit thing where all of her friends are alive, her mum's alive again. But then they have another thing where he punches through the window and grabs her, which that was a whole debate in the um, the Netflix doco I mentioned. They talk about that ending a lot because there was a lot of different endings, they didn't know which one to use. There's a funny story about them pitching the film to Paramount and they had the wrong ending. So they made calls back to the office like, you've got to get that reel and, and bring it over as fast as you can. And they, they ended up having to pause the film right at the end, just to swap out the endings. And that was enough for them to be like, well, we're not interested. You killed the momentum by pausing the movie. So there's an interesting little backstory, but I think the ending's kind of crap. Like, I don't know what it's meant to say.
0: That it's doing all that and then ends with the weird skipping rope. and
1: Yeah, with just like the whole like, oh, he's dead, but he's not really. And I yeah. get that that's that is almost like a trait in the slasher franchise itself.
0: Well, I think this is and this is a good kind of segue into one of the points. Uh, it definitely seems that a recurring theme is uh, with with Craven's direction as, as a director is his films work really good in their their origins, or they work at their most effective in their origins. It it's a pretty general thing that all of his sequels have uh, lesser um, critical appraisal um some of them take nosedives too from their first to their set sequential film um and maybe this film might have been more beneficial had it only been one film or one or two films rather than what did it end up being was it three or four
1: what for nightmare yeah there's like there's like nine of them oh, there you go because <laughs> they made so he only directed the first one and then new nightmare which is the seventh one but that's meant to be like a sort of intertextual version mm. of that whole collection of events. Um,
0: so back to the wealth stuff. But even then, yeah. e- even then, knowing, like you said, they didn't know there'd be eight preceding films or whatever. Like, So right. why is there. Well, why to that multi- point,
1: they might have, because apparently Robert England, when he did his edition to play Freddie, they immediately gave him like a six film contract. They did it straight away because they were that confident in his performance. So, maybe they did know they were going mm-hmm. to do a bunch more. There you go. Which might be why the ending is so ambiguous. it's so yeah. all over the place.
0: <laughs> it's a bit of an odd one. It's um. a
1: bit random. Um, the thing I want to talk about is, you know, it's like I said earlier, where you you it will be harder to bring this film into the modern day because of the, the way we understand information, technology, phones, all of that. The one thing you can't change is the idea of dreaming. And the fact that we still really to this day don't know what dreams are necessarily, mm. they're just as vague now as they were in the eighties when they made this film, and that whole scene where they have her sort of all taped up and she's dreaming like that's interesting, but it also speaks to the vagueness of dreams in general, yeah. and what I like about it is like you said it, it it creates the playground where you can make these absurd visuals and deaths and all these crazy things, like you know the staircase becoming mud that like her feet get stuck in or um even just the deaths of, of them it rolling could definitely be a fun play
0: around yeah um yeah. some of them are fun i feel like um there's definitely a, it's a platform for creativity which is why i'm surprised we haven't seen con- uh, a contemporary remake of this or a, co- right. a contemporary sequel because the fact is if anything the the film proves this film just stand alone proves he can't really die Hmm. um and the ambiguous, all-over-the-place ending really proves that. I mean, he really is just a spirit that is thought-based. Now, we know that now as the audience. We have that, that, that discourse, that objective discourse, but the characters in whatever the film do don't know that. Hmm. So it really just goes to show that something like this, if you were to do a remake or such, would we would know how to beat him, but obviously the characters wouldn't and... Then it would be a matter of trying to make those characters realistic and believable enough and compelling enough to have us watch them slowly get killed. One day, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, what what I think is an interesting part is just the visual effects period mm. and how they did and how unique they are because they're not they're not groundbreaking. This isn't Star Wars, but they're unique. Like I I love the visual when he's like his head and claws are like melting through the wall and they're sort of creeping over Nancy as she's sleeping. Like just those visuals. You really can't... I mean, you obviously can do them nowadays, but I think there was a creative and inventiveness to it in the 80s, the way they did it. And and again, watching something like New Nightmare, the way they handle visual effects, where they try to be a bit more CG about the whole thing, it looked horrible. But it looked, there was something about it that was so inventive here. And I, I don't know, I really appreciate that. And I wanted to give a shout-out to just, again, the first death when she's rolling around the walls. like that. That's a very Inception-esque effect that they're mm. doing where they're literally rolling a set upside down and they just have to sort of tape everything all the set dressing into the walls but you know we're talking about this is 84 yeah inception was 2010 so for its time it was absolutely insane that kind of effect and wouldn't you just, like, just
0: love to see a nolan version of of a freddy krueger <laughs>
1: inception 2, inception two. <laughs> freddy's revenge yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> you gotta go deeper that's how you beat him
1: yeah yeah no I just I, I just wanted to point it out because I thought the inventiveness of that was really fun and I love the iconography as well it was like you know the girls in their 90s or their pyjamas walking around in the boiler room like it's just it's a great visual it's yeah. a great juxtaposition just things like that I really appreciated what was your highlight scene Jake? my highlight scene would probably like I like I said I like, I like that juxtaposition I love um Johnny Depp's death, Depp, of course, is iconic before the blood. And there's a great story about how the blood actually spilt out of the set during that. So instead of like saying cut, they would just like run. <laughs> and the mm. whole crew had to run away. But my highlight scene more specifically would be when Nancy's sort of sneaking out to the precinct to see. Uh, is his name Rod? What's his name?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, Rod. I think. Yeah, Rod or Ron?
1: The, right. The guy, yeah, who gets arrested falsely from. Mm-hmm. They think he murdered his girlfriend. But what I like about the scene is what you said earlier about how it sort of blends the dream world and the real world in ways that you can't really, as an audience, tell the difference. Mm. And I love... There's sort of hints in it that you are entering the dream world where it's obviously very foggy and she's running around at night, the empty streets. But I love that when she calls out to, to Johnny Depp and he sort of steps aside from the tree in this very stiff motion of being like, yeah, I'm still here. And she's like, yep, just checking. And he sort of just like sips back behind the tree. Like it's a very calculated movement. That's another hint that this is a dream because of just the way he mm. came out onto Scream and spoke and I just like I that's a great representation of the melding between the real world and the dream world. And I thought that was a really good scene. But Zeke, like, what's your highlight scene?
0: Oh, it's gonna be John Johnny Depp's death scene. Yeah. <laughs> I think it becomes back to the it's like you were saying earlier, it's the the the, the cleverness of of physical uh props and and mm. it's just a very fast like it's an iconic scene and probably one of the best horror death scenes I reckon around for sure yeah um with its terms of creativity and 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 staying true to the slasher monster not just doing it for just the the flair or the coolness which um a lot of uh, horror slash films tend to do in their later later films they tend to take their slasher monster and make them just kind of do fun and quirky ways of killing people. It's exactly
1: one... what these sequels do to this film. <laughs> yeah.
0: Whereas this one would be a great example of, of staying very true to the focus and what makes Freddy Krueger so ty- uh, uh, um, creative, yet um, still terrifying.
1: Yeah. No, and, it's, and, and that, that visual was stuck in my brain for many, many years. So yeah. there you go.
0: No worries. A Nightmare on Elm Street is currently available on Stan.
1: Yeah, Stan, of all places. I thought it was on Netflix, but alas, it's only the remake. That's on Netflix. But, of course, home release, collection, all that jazz. Speaking of Netflix, though, Jake, what's new to Netflix and cinemas this week? Oh, you'll be excited for this one, Zeke. It's a sequel to your favourite film coming to Netflix, Army of Thieves, which is, I should say, it's actually a prequel to Army of the Dead. Because they know you love that film so much, Zeke. They well,
0: the, just... the the Snyder one. Yep, that came out this year. Yeah,
1: they got onto it real quick, Zeke. They know you liked it a lot. So, they wanted how to make a... they do that. They wanted to make another one for you.
0: But how quick was that? <laughs> well, with like Dave <laughs> Batista and stuff. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, like it's, he's in it.
1: it. Well, I don't think he's in it, but it's like a it's a similar concept. I re- started directing it. No, I don't think he's directing it, but it, it's it's the same franchise.
0: I love how this is a franchise now.
1: It sees a mysterious woman recruit a bank teller to assist in a heist of impossible-to-crack safes across Europe. You should, you, Zeke, you should be so excited. Your new favourite so film. Wait, is
0: there going to be zombies in it? Or is it just I, a heist movie that just so happens to take place? Bef- how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> don't, I'm going to watch don't, it. Don't,
1: don't <laughs> shoot the messenger, oh Zeke. Oh, my God. I can't believe... Uh,
0: look- has that ever happened before? Like, like with exclusion to the MCU, has a franchise been born in the same year and had two films come out?
1: The uh, the Fear Street trilogy, that was this yeah, year. I guess so, yeah. Three parts in three weeks That's or whatever crazy. it was. Crazy. Yeah, Netflix—they're getting onto that stuff. You also got Hypnotic, which sees a young woman who seeks self-improvement in list the help of a renowned. Uh, hype, hype, hypno, hypnotherapist my goodness mm. I struggle with that one which she soon discovers brings deadly consequences uh, coming to Stan, this where you've got 2002's The Wild Thornberry's movie three's The Last Samurai 2009's The Loved Ones and 2017's It, we were just talking about Pennywise mm. coming to Disney Plus is where you have Books of Blood which is an anthology horror film that ties together three tales through space and time pretty vague but I'll take it finally coming to Prime this week you have The Green Knight which is the fantasy retelling of the medieval story of Sir Gawain and The Green Knight comes out on Thursday the 28th so that is very exciting we've waited a long 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 time for that one here in Australia and coming to Paramount Plus is Paranormal Activity Next of Kin which is the seventh film in the franchise the first in over six years and yeah it's coming exclusively to Paramount Plus on Friday the 29th I did not expect that but hey speaking of uh, horror films with way too many films in the in the slots and uh, coming to cinemas this week you have antlers which sees a small town oregon teacher and her brother the local sheriff discover that a young student is harboring a dangerous secret you have passing which premiered at sundance earlier this year and sees a woman reunited with a black friend who has been living her life as a white person which uh, that's a vague one i don't know what that means but we're gonna find out and it stars ruth negger and tessa thompson and finally, Halloween Kills is the sequel to the surprisingly good 2018 film and continues the story of Michael Myers and Laurie, of course, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So that is, I guess, chronologically speaking, the third film in the franchise, next to the 1978 film and the 2018 film. Mm. So that's this week. Are you going to see it?
0: Yeah, I'll see if we've got time. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting because it's gotten some pretty all-over-the-place reviews. So
1: Yeah, first uh. it's definitely <clears throat> excuse me, not as good as the 2018 one, but... I might still catch it because I liked it. I liked yeah. The other ones.
0: Yeah, it was a bit of fun. Yeah. Put my hands over my eyes.
1: <laughs> you and your favorite genre, oh, horror? It's my
0: favorite genre. Well, speaking of my favorite genre, Jake, <laughs> we're <got to> <laughs> wrapping up this uh, horror trifecta yep. Yep. next week. But what are we watching?
1: Next week at the show, Zeke, we're watching Midsommar.
0: I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. Oh, no, well, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just
1: wish you would have told me. That's all.
0: Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for, like, a year now. And don't
1: forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you will meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her
0: again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so
1: very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry.
0: I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through?
1: Christian says you've got this special week planned.
0: It's sort of a crazy festival.
1: Special ceremonies and dressing up. That
0: sounds fun.
1: believable
0: welcome and happy midsummer school
1: a couple travels to scandinavia to visit a rural hometown's fabled swedish midsummer festival what begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of the pagan cult so zeke i saw this from a couple years ago i think it's absolutely phenomenal you haven't seen it. I've never seen it. You haven't seen Ari Aster's other film, Hereditary.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've got a lot of it. You should try and watch I've both got, of them. <laughs> I've got Hereditary on Blu ray too. So it's like. There you it's go. It's been sitting on my shelf for ages. It's kind of like in the same vein as The Screams and The Elm Streets. I just don't seem to get time to. But I would like to honestly tick Hereditary off too. So I'm going to try and. Get both before next week on the show. Mm. Um, I know I promised that last week and didn't deliver. So, um, but to be honest, I have been really this film. I was going to, I was always going to watch. I was just going to wait until we did it on the show because mm. it's the it's the easiest way. To, it's been sitting on net my Netflix watch list for like a year now. Um,
1: yeah, I wonder if it's a director's cut on Netflix because I got the Blu Ray director's cut. I've never seen it, but I've always wanted to see. Mm. Because it's a two-and-a-half-hour film that I only wanted more of, so, which is
0: quite rare. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Starshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Midsummer.